Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. England's year ended much like it started, with a disappointing away defeat that could probably have been avoided. I'm Yazran, and with me on our last show of 2019 is the magazine editor of the Wisden Cricket Monthly magazine, Joe Homan. Hello, Yaz. And another of our Wisden hip young gunslingers, Harry Joseph. Hello, Yaz. Morning. Harry, what was your moment of the week? For me, it was Maharaj bowling Stokes yesterday. Just felt then that the tiny bit of hope that I think myself and all England fans had that's when it probably evaporated Stokes had looked to be really positive against him but Maharaj won the battle until that point in the test did you genuinely have hope that England would win it a little bit yeah I mean I almost think you'd be mad not to after what happened at Headingley this summer Mm. um but it was always always an uphill battle wasn't it yesterday and you just felt that how well the South African bowlers were all bowling was going to make it really tricky for them that that Headingley thing was key wasn't it because without that match this summer I don't think anyone would have given England a chance history was against them in terms of scores on that ground in the fourth innings in terms of South Africa's record at home in terms of England getting any away wins at all really uh, it was just Stokes there with the memory of heading that it made you think maybe perhaps but yeah completely agree that Maharaj dismissal of him was was the moment where he just oh that's that's it pretty much done there for me it was when Burns got out I thought until that point England would I think I reckon they had a one in four chance when Burns and Denley were in and it says a lot about how well Burns and Denley have done in my head that for me I thought that was a really important partnership I thought they if they could if they could back to a lunge I thought England had a real real chance and South Africa did uh, really panic in the Kusar Pereira game in the year so I thought if England could get within 100 with two people who who are competent with the bat at the crease I thought they did have a chance but in the end they lost by 107 runs um, let's start at the beginning Joe Root has said since the game that 14 of the 19 England players on tour have experienced symptoms of the bug that's been going around. Ollie Pope was in quarantine at the start of the game, so Johnny Bairstow returned to the side. Bairstow had a tough test match, scored 10 runs across the two innings. Um, but I have a lot of sympathy for Bairstow. When he was dropped in September, Ed Smith said, I think there's a real opportunity for him to reset and focus on how he can go about becoming a really top test match player again. Since Ed Smith said that, he's faced a grand total of zero first-class balls. Um, at risk of going on a bit of a rant here, uh, I think this was a totally avoidable situation from England and it's another example of like quite unpragmatic selection. Zach Crawley was picked as a reserve batsman in New Zealand, uh, played after Joss Butler was injured and one test later, the 21-year-old has fallen below Bairstow in the pecking order. It's as if Bairstow, a guy who averaged 18 in test cricket in 2019, and Crawley, a 21-year-old with a first-class average of 30, are the only two possible options to be England's backup batsmen. Look at South Africa, Rassi, Van der Zusten and Pretorius were both on debut at the age of 30 and they both did well. Look at England's number three. You don't always have to be searching for like the next big thing. I can't. I honestly can't believe that Bairstow was selected again. I'd feel sorry for him. How was he supposed to work in his game when he literally didn't have a single opportunity um, to, to work in his game since he got dropped? Um, what's wrong with picking, I know it's an unsexy option, but someone like Sam Northeast's batting cover, um, surely there's more capable cover in the short term than Bairstow and a 21-year-old. I, yeah, I think that the, they tied themselves in knots with their squad for the, the New Zealand tour, really, because I was there when Ed Smith... Uh, announced that at Lords and there was this feeling that because it wasn't the World Test Championship this wasn't quite even like a first choice squad it was a squad specifically for that tour and the feeling even then was that Bairstow would always come back in for South Africa so it felt almost like a sort of punishment for having not batted very well 
there was never going to be an opportunity to play any first class cricket before the South Africa tour. I think obviously work on it in the nets, but that's of limited use potentially. Um, and then the same with the Crawley pick that they picked him as a as a bit of a punt for New Zealand, really a chance to get some experience on a tour that didn't have World Test Championship points um, on it. But then having been on that tour, it seemed like they felt obliged to then take him to South Africa. I don't think that was the case. I don't think they had to take him there. I completely agree. They could have taken a much more experienced batsman um, out there. Personally, it looks bad the best I pick now. I don't think it's quite as disastrous. It didn't have to be as disastrous as it looked in this test match. Uh, He batted very well in South Africa last time out, albeit he was in completely different form at that point. And then the thing is, he is such a good player. There is this temptation to keep going back to him, hoping that it will come good. But obviously, in retrospect, after that test match, it doesn't look good. I'm sure Pope will come in for the second test. And then you have to wonder how many more test matches Bairstow will actually play. Yeah, I mean, he's since he became a, a genuinely world-class opening batsman in one-day cricket, his test form has fallen off a cliff quite dramatically. Um, and there's no disgrace in the fact that he can't be a world-class ODI opener and a world-class middle-order test batsman at the same time. Very, very few people can do both, like, ever. Like, it's, it freaks, like, de Villiers who basically who can be so drastically different in the two. And also, if you look at the schedule for 2020, um, if he goes to the IPL, even if he goes to the Shr- on, on the Shranka tour, if he is in England's White Bulls squads for the home summer, there are very opportunities for him to actually play first-class cricket. Um, and that actually goes the same for, like, even someone like Tom Banton. There are very few opportunities for the best white ball players now to actually work on their first class game. Harry, do, do you think that's the last we've seen of Best Own quite a long time in the test squad? Or do you think that, do you think he'll be back again quite soon? I guess it is worth remembering. He's probably also in the test squad at the minute as the backup wicketkeeper, isn't he? I assume mm. if Butler was to get, well, if Pope, if all three of them were playing and Butler got injured, I assume Best would keep over Pope. I want to say yes, because I think he does need to go and play red ball cricket. But with the England selectors, you're, you're never quite sure. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he went to Sri Lanka. I mean, he got 100 in Sri Lanka. I mm. know people say, well, Ben Folk should go. He Look how well he did. Mm. Besto came in and batted three and got 100, didn't he? Mm. So I think there's every possibility. I guess we've seen with Moeen, he's sort of said, you know what, I'm not, I want some time away from test cricket. It's too much. And there's a possibility Besto will say the same. He's probably about as in demand a cricketer as there is for these franchise leagues. And there's, he might say, you know what, I'm going to go and enjoy, play a format that I know I will be successful in. I know my game at the minute is perfect for, and I'll go back to Red Bull cricket somewhere down the line when it suits me. I caught a bit of the debate on Sky last night, which had uh, Paul Farbrace and Mark Rampakash, which is a kind of, it's a real good insight into what's been happening in that England squad because they were both part of it. Uh, so recently, Farbrace is Bayliss's assistant and Rampakash is the batting coach. Um, and... The fact that Chris Silverwood is the new coach, but was also part of the team with Farbrace and Rampakash, you can infer from that that they're all they're all on the same page. Not too long ago, uh, and what really struck me with Charles Colville asking Rampakash and Farbrace questions last night was that no one's on the same page. There's so many mixed messages there. Rampakash is talking about perhaps Stokes should be captain. Is it actually best for Root to take a back seat? Well, now Rampakash has been working with Root very recently. That's quite a that's quite a big statement to make you've got Farbray saying that Archer shouldn't be playing the next test match that you need to watch him carefully that he shouldn't be playing too many games in a row so it's very it just that was the thinking of the England set up six months ago those are the people who probably had the same or very similar opinion well exactly Silverwood was the fast bowling coach is now the coach it it just it just yeah it just struck me that there there seemed some very confused thinking uh, and they couldn't express what they thought they were asked what they should do for the, the side for the second test and Rampakash just went round and round and round in circles, never really got to a conclusion. Farbrace was a bit firmer in his calling that he said Archer shouldn't play in this game. Um, he just said Broad and Anderson should play as many games as they can together as possible. Yeah, it, I think fans look on wondering where this England selection process comes from. Uh, and if you watched that last night, I think that would have only reinforced that feeling. Going back to the, the first innings of the game, Quinton de Kock, scored a brilliant 95 that in the end was a, was a match-winning innings. Uh, really, really classy. And But from an England perspective, Sam Curran put in probably his best overseas performance in an England shirt. And I guess the debate about who misses out from the England team attack for the second test match is a difficult one because of how well Sam Curran played. If maybe he didn't play as well, then he'd be the one who'd obviously miss out. But that was a really impressive performance from, from Curran. Yeah, and I think we said 
earlier in the summer that for us, Sam Curran probably is always in our, our England side. He, he makes things happen, as we've seen everyone saying on social media. He has to play for me because he offers that different angle. I, I think it's time that you broke up the Broad-Anderson partnership. It, they're both fantastic bowlers, don't get me wrong, but I th- for me, you have to play Archer. He's a superstar. Curran's performed so well repeatedly that you can't leave him out and you've got to play a spinner in the next test. So. The Broad bowled very well in the first innings, I thought, um, and has bowled very well this year. So we saying Anderson, having yeah. just got back to fitness, I mean, it's not. it, it makes sense even aside from form, he's only just got back to fitness. This is a four test series. It, he's not going to play all four. I can't see that happening. So perhaps he does miss the second one, but it's a big, big call to make. Uh, and it was interesting. I think it was NASA saying that, or maybe it was Atherton saying England keep making the easy calls here. Now, if they're going to pick a spinner, which I agree with Harry, they absolutely have to, then they have to make a tough call here. The easy call in a way would be to say, well, bold Sam, you have a rest for this one. But I, I think that'd be completely the wrong decision based on what we've seen in the first test. It was a very on Jimmy Anderson-like performance. Um, normally, in away in away games, England don't do that well, and I still expect him to get two for sixty off twenty-five overs or something like that. But he went over three and a half and over over the course of the test match, and obviously, huge mitigating circumstances. He's not played a test match in ages. He's not played that much first-class cricket in ages. Um, but if you're doing it purely on form, and as you say, there are fitness reasons for it, Anderson is probably the most likely person to go. I'm just going to call both of you out. On that, do, do England have to play a spinner? Like, why, why do England have to play a spinner? Pick your four best bowlers, right? Um, well, I, I always like a spinner in the attack pretty much whatever the surface. Um, and the feeling is that I believe that this surface is going to suit spin a bit more than Centurion, at least historically it has, although it is South Africa. So a spinner is not going to get through a huge amount of work. There is also, if, if we're looking at, it seems to be, the sounds coming out of the camp is that Don Best has sort of leapfrogged Matt Parkinson, which is another issue you could raise with the selectors. Parkinson was picked for New Zealand. Best wasn't even really considered for that squad. Now is is Best the, the leading spinner? Now what Best does offer is runs, which he's already shown in Test Cricket for England, and he's a really good fielder. Um, so with Best, you get a reasonably whole package, which means if your spinner's not bowling a huge amount, you're still at least getting something out of them, which unfortunately for Parkinson, he doesn't offer much with the bat and he's not as good a fielder as Best. So they, I could see them ending up going with that and England, pick. and England lower order runs has actually been a problem for so long in, in England's strength that was actually one of the big differences between the two teams a massive one and I picked out this stat have I got it here I can't I've lost it now but I think South Africa scored about 207 208 runs position 7 to 11 and I think England's was about 60 or 70 now in a 107 game um, some run game that, I'm not saying that was the decisive factor because there are other factors to take into account, obviously. But that's really important. And, and England's lower order runs have got them out of trouble for a long period of time. But actually, against high quality bowling, they just get blown away. But is that then, again, letting the batsman off the hook? It is. By picking best. You, you're almost saying, we'll pick best because he might give us 10 overs of decent spin. But he might also contribute a gritty 30 or something. Shouldn't it be, we're going to pick our four best bowlers? For me, you have to play Parkinson. He was in the squad initially and then the batsman you are there to score runs you are paid to score runs so yeah I think you need I absolutely see where you're coming from I think you need to be perhaps a little bit more pragmatic than that and the issue potential Parkinson and I haven't seen him bowling but he's he's gone for a few in these tour matches so they have to make a call how is he bowling is he in decent enough form to make a test debut uh, and I, I couldn't tell you the answer to that yeah I mean Harry you know Matt Parkinson better than most people in cricket isn't it a lot being made of two performances or basically one performance in a warm-up game? I think so, yeah. I mean, he's a leg spinner. Traditionally, they take a little bit more time to find their rhythm, which then maybe it makes it very difficult to chuck him into a test match. I get that. But at the same time, he comes in from not playing for Lanks in Red Bull cricket and admittedly Div 2 is not as good as test cricket. But he does well every time. Like he was, I think you might correct me on this, the leading spin wicket-taker in Division 2 last year, which is... He played four games, which is crazy. Which says quite a lot about how good he is and quite a lot about how, how little spin is used in Div 2, isn't it? Yeah, precisely. So he, I think he would. He is also the sort who, as the standard he plays goes up, he would similarly, his game would up as well. And also, um, Bess hasn't played much championship exactly. cricket. I think he played seven games maybe to... To Parkinson's four about that, and so, some of them for Yorkshire because he yeah. wasn't getting into the. So these are two side. young spinners who haven't got a lot of first class mm. overs under their belt, and that's not their fault. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's a very, very, un- it's a very, very unsexy, very boring pick. But Liam Dawson, 
you know what you get from Liam Dawson. That's kind of why he's unappealing sometimes because you kind of know what his ceiling is. But you also know he's going to be pretty reliable, runs the bat. I'd much rather have Liam Dawson playing a test match than Don Best at the moment. But so going back to uh, when England batted, they, they they got on a signature collapse of their own, uh, 39 for six before being bowled out for 181. Um, on England's first innings, they're not obviously not the two people to blame for England's problems, but I think there needs to be more responsibility from Root and Stokes. The way they've been getting out this winter has actually been quite frustrating. In the first test match in New Zealand, it was Stokes's in, uh, dismissals in both innings, attacking balls. He didn't really didn't have to at all. That led to two England collapses. Uh, Root has now got out three out of five times this winter, trying to guide the ball to third man. And they just don't have the ruthlessness of a Coley... Smith, and I know I'm comparing them to the very best in the world, but that's a compliment. I think they can be as good. I think talent-wise, they they are as good as them. So um, I think it's a it's a bit of muddle thinking how they're going about batting. I think Root has also got out twice this winter where he's kind of been like halfway through one shot and then changed his mind whilst playing it. And I, I know obviously they're not England's <laughs> most, most, most pressing concerns, but you saw in the summer with Labashain and Smith, a, a team with holes in it can you can have those holes covered by having two guys who really really are ruthless with the bat I think they're quite different cases though I think Stokes is in phenomenal form and has been for a while now and has a very clear method about how he bats he's happy to soak up deliveries initially doesn't really look for quick singles particularly mm-hmm. and then will pick the bowler to go after and then go on from there Root I still think is struggling for form I think he's really he's trying his hardest but it's just not coming fluently to him uh, and almost as a result, he's playing some silly shots because he's just not quite not quite feeling it. Even that New Zealand double century, I mean, that was a, a kind of success of will rather than than skill. I thought in that in that innings, it was a lot like uh, Alistair Cook's double hundreds towards the end of his career, yeah. where he wouldn't really be in form, and then you get a really slow pitch, and he just grind out runs and just never look like getting out. I mean, I thought this now. I don't really remember Root playing his signature back foot. Drive? Well, then also we have to give credit to South Africa's bowlers, don't we? If, if that shot isn't there to play, then they've done very well to to limit him. And this this is obviously is the thing that happens throughout Test cricket. The more you play, and England play a lot of Test matches, the more you learn about um, batsmen. I mean, Alistair Cook said he barely played a pull shot for the last four years of his Test career because no one bowled it to him there. Why would you? He doesn't get out doing that. I thought the passage of play that lost England a game above all others was the third morning when they conceded 125 runs in one session. Bowling bouncer after bouncer after bouncer after Vernon Philander took four for 16 off, but 14 overs by keeping it really, really simple. Bowling top of off. After the game, Fafdi Plessis was asked about South Africa's game plan with the ball and it was uh, very simple. He said, we're just keeping it simple and being patient and waiting for England to make mistakes. England were the opposite of of patient. It was very odd when they'd seen how successful Philander was. They went, they resorted to this short ball tactic. Yeah, I thought... it was almost staggering to watch that it was basically give a ball to Archer and he'll try and bump them. And then Broad at the other end was bowling around the wicket at the batsman. And he just thought, then fair enough, try it for a couple of overs, see if you get a chance. And when Decott came in, he took Archer on and absolutely won that battle, didn't he? I, it was really muddled thinking, I felt. Then one of them, I can't remember who got out first, I think it was Van der Dusen. Yeah, it was. Um, they had one slip to the new batsman and you're thinking, surely you're going to attack the new batsman like you've got four seamers who are all wicket-taking bowlers and yet you've got one slip and it was really, really bizarre. I don't know, I think Root was on the pitch in that period or was it Stokes? For, he, he, Root was on the pitch for about half of that. This is when Root went off and was supposedly ill and went under quarantine but was back on the pitch within an hour. But yeah, Root was on the pitch for that. So, and this is an interesting point about the whole Roots captaincy is taking a lot of stick here and I think probably quite rightly uh, but he won't be making these decisions alone the decision at the toss for instance Silverwood must have been involved in that decision I'd be amazed if Stokes is not uh, Stokes is involved in everything in that England change room that's, that's clear to see so for everyone to and Broad and Anderson have paid Broad and Anderson exactly 300 tests between them so if people are saying a lot of people now saying Root isn't up to captain the side Stokes should be doing it. You do have to, you have to consider that Stokes is also involved in a lot of these decisions, or at least should be as vice captain. Uh, another argument is perhaps is Root necessarily stamping his mark on this side? Is he actually making decisions he wants to, or is he being too easily led by Broad and Anderson? It's interesting when Stokes gave Broad that ticking off when Root was off the pitch and he was captain. 
th- these are different characters, but you would never see Root do anything like that with Broad. Is this what that England side needs to, to yeah, just to kind of have their captain stamp a bit more authority on their team in the way that Coley does, in the way that Duplessis does, in a way that Williamson doesn't and has got some criticism recently from even Brendan McCullum about the way he's leading that New Zealand side. Yeah, but I think what Harry said was 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 completely right. It, it was like bewildering seeing England resort to that tactic and Anderson brought a pace so much. Why why did they think that was the right way to go? And Archer copped a lot of criticism online uh, about how he bowled, but I thought he was bowling to the plan that was, that was set to him. I have quite a lot of sympathy for Archer. He's a victim almost of his own success. Come, came in during the World Cup, did amazingly. Then to go and take two fifers in your first four test matches was just... And I thought he bowled so well and people were so quick to jump down his throat, his body language. Anderson's body language I thought was shocking in that test match. And no one, there are no comments. I, he's England's best bowler, fine. But as England's best bowler and leader of the attack, do you not have a duty to show the body language, lead the way? And, and Broad's body language is not always particularly great either. And the way he speaks to fielders is not been great in the past not constructive not constructive (laughs) I think exactly yes I find it incredible that they went for that and that would probably be one of the reasons why Anderson wouldn't play the next test for me as well because I think for me you've got to have a spinner in there fair enough um Harry you were impressed by not only Rory Burns in the second innings he scored 84 um but but Dom Sibley as well who got his career best score 29 it's not exactly pulling up any trees but you were impressed by the way he went about his business I thought there were signs that he was beginning to get it in test cricket. I thought first innings he actually got, a, I thought that was a really good ball. It seems to get quite, it got mixed reviews, the first innings dismissal. Some said, does he need to play it? But I thought early on in your innings, you do feel for the ball a bit and that's probably bounced a bit more than he expected. I was like, he probably never faced a ball exactly. like that on the surface like that um, ever before. And I thought second innings, I thought he did well. Um, his, his game is limited. Like There's no point lying about it, but Alistair Cook's game was limited and, he was incredible. I'm not saying Dom Sibley will be Alistair Cook, but I think there is, I hope that England stick with him for this series and give him a chance. Um, he just, yeah, he just seemed, he was, he's willing to eat balls. We know that from county cricket. He, he knows where his scoring shots are. Probably is going to have to expand to the seamers, his offside game to continue to improve. But there were signs of it. But After, I think when he got to about, 20 you did see him start to to un- unveil his his cover drive and two of his dismissals as Windsor have been quite poor dismissals but to spin bowlers which I think is quite interesting because he's almost doing his primary job but it's but, when it's what when de Grandome when Santner came on New Zealand was oh, when that, he looked the dismissal against Maharaj will just yeah yeah and be one, eating away at him but I think and there's an argument to say this is true across all series but particularly in this series with Falander and Rabada with the new ball I think Balls faced from Sibley is going to be almost as important as mm. the run scored. And that he needs to be judged on that in this series as well. Because I completely agree with Harry. I think he should play this whole series. I think the weight of runs he scored in county cricket demand that we know for sure either way whether he can cut it. We still don't know at this stage. So don't drop him. We can't come back to a point in eight months time. Sibley's got another 700 runs in county cricket. And we go, well, maybe we should give him another chance because we didn't really give him that many... Yeah. We've got to find out either way. And there's too many English openers around that people still aren't really quite sure whether they're good enough or whether we let them go too quickly. Mm, absolutely. Um, we kind of talked about it a bit already, but what, what changes do you think will actually happen for the for the second test? Well, Pope surely comes in for Bairstow. Yeah. And I, it sounds, from the media anyway, it sounds like Bess is going to play. It's... Who, who they drop is the question, isn't it, of the seamers? That is a question. Who, who, I, you're I, dropping Anderson? That is Yaz's question. Anderson, <laughs> for me, best... I, think I would play Parkinson, but I can see Joe's pragmatic point in selection. So what I think they do, will do will be best will come in for Anderson. Joe? Um, I, would, I, would go best, I would go best for Anderson, based on the way Anderson bowled in that test and the fact that he's coming back to fitness. Um, I'm a bit... Uh, given that Farbray said... Resting Archer, I think that that obviously is. I'd be, I fear that they will rest Archer, um, to get the spinner in, and I think that would be a mistake. It's the end of the year, a uh, chance for a bit of reflection on a number of levels. Twenty nineteen was England's worst year in Test cricket, despite it being 
England's best year overall for cricket in many other ways since 1999. Um, it's the first year since 1999 that England have gone an entire calendar year without a multi-game Test Series win. They obviously won the one-off game against Ireland. They began the year with a 2-1 defeat to West Indies, a side currently eighth in the ICC Test Rankings. Followed it with that win over Ireland, but they were bundled out for 85 on day one. Failed to beat Australia at home for the first time in 18 years. Lost 1-0 away to New Zealand and then lost obviously the first test centurion to a side who had gone 11 months and five games without a win. They lost their far, last five games and with two debutants. That sounds quite grim. Are there, are there any positives from 20? Well, the world cup obviously has to be taken into account all, yeah. all of this. And, and I think most England fans, maybe not most, a lot of England fans would accept that the world cup win would come at a necessary cost to test cricket. If it's in the short term, the concern now is that have we got started down this slippery slope that we're going to struggle to get back from uh, certainly away from home, England continued to be terrible. And to me, and I don't want to pile in so early in Silverwood's uh, England coaching career, and he obviously needs to have a proper chance now he's been given the role. But for me, that record makes it all the more staggering that he got this job as the continuity candidate. You had Gary Kirsten, who has captained, sorry, coached South Africa and India to number one in the test rankings. Huge amounts of experience, uh, knows so much about batting uh, and batting in the way that we want our England team to start batting for me to for, for Charles to say well we're sticking with basically the system they actually I think he actually said that Chris Und- Chris Silverwood understands the system well what does that first mean? of all yeah what does it mean if other people don't understand the system is the system too complicated and also the system isn't working because England aren't winning enough test matches so I think it was a strange call in the first place We'll have to see how it pans out. I think Silver's obviously been brilliant for Essex and uh, really popular with the players. He's obviously a popular cricketer coach in general. Um, so I do wish him the best, but I do think it was a strange selection in the first place. Positives, I actually think there are. Burns Sorry, has... you asked for positives, didn't you? And I just gave you more negative. <laughs> Burns has solidified his place in the side yeah. and got first Test 100 and then soon his second Test 100. I looks a cracking player and, and looks one of England's most he's very quickly become one of England's most reliable performers yeah and especially when you watched him against Ireland you thought oh my word you'll be lucky to last two Ashes tests so massive fair play to him I think Joe Denley's done really well this year just needs to get that 100 but I think he's his 90-40 over was, was brilliant yeah. worth 100 in my book yeah agreed um, the emergence of Archer with the Red Bull for me he, that has been a big success so I think there are they're definite signs of positives. Pope's innings in the second test, was it, against New Zealand? Yeah. Like he's going to be a superstar, isn't he? So there is reason to be positive, but it's the same old failings that it's been for a number of years. Mm. And until that changes, I completely agree with Joe's point on Silverwood. It felt a little bit like maybe jobs for the boys. Um, and that could come back to bite England if this doesn't change quickly, which it needs to. Yeah, I mean, we did we did a thing on the website yesterday on the 32 most bonkers things that have happened to England in Test cricket in 2019. Did you start trying to look for 32 reasons or did you just count out the reasons and you came to 32? Well, good question, actually. So I came up with a list with, with Ben, Ben Gardner, and initially we we're going to do 20 moments that were kind of ridiculous over the course of the year, but for, across all formats. Then we started going game by game and we're like, Too we're many. Gonna, well, we should just do Test cricket. <laughs> And then we were like, hang on, we've got the 20, we've not even got the ashes yet. <laughs> uh, we, just do it. we just do as many as we can. Um, I, I, I'm going to read them out because I think some of them are quite funny. Um, so starting the year by being bowled out for 77 in Barbados. After having West Indies 120 for six, being on the receiving end of a, an unbeaten 295 run stand from Shane Dowrich and Jason Holder. Ross and Chase are batting all rounder with a bowling average of over 40, taking eight for 60 against them. They're both three all happening in the same test. Batting Ben Folks, their player of the series in their most recent tour at eight in Barbados and Antigua. Dropping Ben Folks two tests after being England's player of the series. Mark Wood bowling one of the fastest spells ever delivered by an English bowler in his only test appearance of the year. Getting bowled out for 85 against Ireland at Lords 10 days after winning the World Cup. Jack Leach scoring 92 opening the batting. Bowling Ireland out for 38. James Anderson bowling just four overs in the first Ashes test before picking up a series ending calf injury. Having Australia 122 for eight in their first innings, being 282 for four in their own first innings, and yet still losing the first Ashes Test by 251 runs. Joffrey Archer hitting arguably the best batsman since Don Bradman in the form of his life on the head on Test debut. Test cricket's first concussion substitute being hit on the helmet off the first illegal ball he faced, and then going on to be one of the best players of the year. Joffrey Archer 
still on debut, bowling more overs than all of the England seam bowlers combined in Australia's second innings. Joffre Archer bowling, taking six for 45 at Headingley bowling fast medium, getting bowled out for 67. Ben Stokes effectively bowling a 24.2 over spell. The last hour at Headingley, take your pick. Craig Overton being picked out of the blue ahead of Sam Curran at Old Trafford. Craig Overton nearly keeping England's hashes hopes alive with the bat at Old Trafford. Putting in their most complete test performance of the year at the Oval, with Mitchell Barr still taking 5 for 46 in England's first innings. Stuart Broad having David Warner and Toast throughout the Ashes. Batting patiently for one day at Mount Monganui before getting bored on day two. Having New Zealand 127 for four in their first innings with both Williamson and Taylor in the pavilion, yet still conceding 615 for nine. Making Mitch Santner look like Gary Sobers for one test. Ollie Pope keeping for just the fifth time in first-class cricket in the Hamilton test. Making 400 for the first time in the year, yet still sneaking in a collapse of 21 for five. That Joe Denley drop, half their squad falling ill in South Africa, almost exclusively bowling bounces when all evidence pointed to doing the opposite and genuinely having people believe they could chase 376 despite everything that happened in the Centurion test until that point and the way England batted for almost the entirety of 2019. So it's been a wild ride. Wow, got, roll got, on 2020. Yeah, what, you've what's got to give in them store? Um, we've talked a lot about England, um, but earlier today I spoke to Dan Gallen on the phone to get a South Africa perspective of their first win of 2019. Hi Dan, how, how big was that win for South Africa given the year they've had? Oh, it was massive. It was... Um... Yeah, really, really needed. Just, just what happened on the field, what happened off the field, um, and also it wasn't, it wasn't like South Africa rolled up and beat a. Like I know England have their problems, but it is still England, and it is still a team filled with, um, filled with quality. So to to beat them so comprehensively, um, and and to be good at all departments was just so refreshing. I mean, you could see the, you know, Fab Duplessis in, in the post-match press conference, Mark Barcher in the post-match press conference. Both just look really, really relieved. I think, you know, happy, but, but the overwhelming emotion was relief. There were some excellent performances from some of the less experienced players in the South African team. Anrik Norkia took five wickets across the test. How does South Africa produce so many test-level fast bowlers uh, on a regular basis? Over the last five years, it's been Rabada, Abbott, Ngidi, Oliver and Norkia in consecutive years, I think, have emerged. Like, how, how do you guys do it? Look, I don't know, maybe built on from a very young age. You know, just a lot of red meat as a, 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 <laughs> as a child produces uh, big, big, brawny guys. No, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's the wickets. Um, it's the outdoor lifestyle. I think that plays a role. I, th- I think the, uh, you, you know, the one, one thing that I found out in England, living there for a year, is that you, you get sports fans, but you get people that are very specific with the sports that they, that they are fans of. So you get hardcore cricket guys, hardcore rugby guys, hardcore football guys, obviously, but there isn't a lot of crossover. Whereas in South Africa, if you're a sports fan or you play sports, there's a lot of um, cross-code going on. So I think that multi-sport discipline um, creates a, a, a better natural athlete. And you throw that in with um, with, with good outdoor weather where, where kids can be running on, on, on climbing trees from a young age or um, playing, playing sports you know, at, at high school and at primary school. I think it just kind of creates a... Uh, a better athlete, um, and yeah, bouncy wickets, captains who 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 trust the fast bowler, and I think something a bit more, a bit more subtle is that the, the you know South, South Africans like Australians play cricket in a very hyper macho way. You know, being a fast bowler is kind of seen as the alpha male, the apex predator of the side, and I think uh, it's quite aspirational to grow up wanting to be a fast bowler. So if you're a, if you're quite a gifted athlete as a youngster. You're not necessarily turned to to rugby or football. Being a, 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 a cricketer is something that you could pursue. So we don't. The, the game of cricket doesn't necessarily lose its best athletes. So I think it's just all a mix, and and, and as you say, that results in just a, a seemingly endless production line of fast bowling talents. That's really interesting. You touched on it a little bit there. What what part do you think Faf Plessis' captaincy played in the performance of Norkia and? Pretorius, he seemed to really trust them and give them responsibility quite early on when you think you'd keep Rabada and Philander on for longer. Mm. Felt that an interesting game. He was, I, I've never seen him that reactionary. Every time uh, an English batsman had a good shot from a poor ball and hit it to the boundary, but immediately moved the fielders. I, I, I was sitting um, next to Will McPherson from the, from, the, from the standard and we were counting how many times Fuff had done that and I think it was like six or seven times where a short and wide ball was thanked to you know cover points and he immediately put uh, the man down on the boundary sweeping or, or uh, you know someone was pulled and, and he dropped fine leg back 
or, or deep square leg back. Um, so in that sense, Fuff didn't really show a lot of faith in his bowlers. But yes, you're right. He, he showed a lot of faith in his bowlers by keeping them on for perhaps one extra over when, when maybe he would have taken them off. Needs must, maybe, you know, with, with, with KG... Um, struggling with intensity, perhaps over the year, the risk of over-bowling him with Werner Philander's fitness not what um, you would expect from a guy opening the bowling. You know, look at Australia's um, front-line bowlers, what, what natural athletes they are. Maybe had no choice but to trust the the support bowlers. But Arik Nokia wouldn't, wouldn't see himself as a backup bowler. He is a strike bowler. He is a, he is a lithe, whippy sort of... Um, Sort of strike bowler, so I, I guess I guess needs must, but yeah, maybe maybe I'm, I'm being a bit harsh on fast on Fuff. Credit where it's due, he, he did show faith in his bowlers, and he especially showed faith in Keshav Maharaj, who whose contribution mustn't be overlooked here. His um, his wicket of Ben Stokes really tore the game open, and at the time he was he was going at four five and over, and you thought, okay, well maybe maybe the Keshav experiment isn't working, but he stayed on for one more over, and he darted and won in a little fuller, a little. Uh, it, it spun out of the footmarks and found the inside edge and after that seven overs later the new ball was taken and 13 overs after that the game was over so yeah a, a mixed game from Fuff but I guess overall really good How impressed were you by Pretorius on debut both with the bat in the first innings and with the ball across both innings he showed real skill with the ball being able to he got Joe Denny out twice set him up both times swinging the ball away 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 and then an inducker getting him eventually He looked like a veteran didn't, didn't he? he you would never say that that was his first test match uh, I was skeptical, as as, we, as I said on the pod before the uh, the start of the match. I, I didn't know if I, if I necessarily trusted uh, Dwayne Pretorius with the red ball, but I guess it shows what I know because he had an absolutely brilliant game uh, with the bats, really aggressive when he came. That, that partnership with Quinton the Cock in the first innings uh, rescued South Africa. I mean, at one stage, uh, the protests looked like they might get bowled out for 180, but that that partnership with Quinton the Cock took the game away from England and ensured that they that they posted something that the bowlers could work with. And as you say, with the ball, was, uh, you know, miserly, went around two, under three and over. Um, interesting cutters, he's tall, so on a, on, on a wicket that's up and down, he's, he's more than a handful. No, I was I was so impressed with Joe Torres. He, he has certainly done enough to, unless he, his form falls off a cliff in Cape Town, he is likely going to be that all-rounder for the rest of the series. Um, and another man on debut, Rassi van der Dusen. He hit a superb 50 in the second innings. Um, his performance was less of a surprise having done so well in the World Cup early in the year. He's 30 and he looks ready for international cricket from day one. Why has it taken so long for him to get into, that, into the South African team? He looked class. Yeah, he was quite an interesting game for Rassi. The, the two drop catches um, and, and the six in the first innings wouldn't have helped. Uh, you saw the relief when he caught Jofra Archer. I mean, it, it, it was partly a case of getting of getting Archer out with his big needle now uh, after the beamers. But I think he was just relieved to have caught one. Looked good for his 50 in, in the second dig. Um, to answer your question, I, I guess just the people in front of him. Timber Bavuma, who uh, has been made vice-captain of the side, was ahead of him. And, and they stuck with Tina Sabrain, who had scored a lot of runs in domestic cricket. Um yeah, I guess it's one of those things. Obviously, A.B. de Villiers and Patrick de C. occupied um, the middle order when, when, when Rusty Fanadison was, was emerging. So it's just a case. It's not like Rusty's been unlucky not to have made his test debut before now. Um, but I, I, as Australia have shown, with, with Mike Hussey obviously being the, the, the prime example, when you when you hand a 30-year-old a debut, he doesn't look in awe of the situation. Sure, he would have been feeling nerves, but... You know, a, a lot of runs in domestic cricket, having having played uh, white ball for South Africa, having a really good World Cup, he he walked in as if he as if he'd been in the camp for a while, as as if he be- felt like he belonged. The way he spoke with the press, he didn't seem to um, to let the occasion get the better of him. Obviously, he looked a little nervous in that first innings, but the 50 and the second one really calmed things down. And yeah, I'm I'm really happy for him. He's, he's genuinely one of the nice guys of, of world cricket, and it's it's nice to see him get a break. And finally, um, Aidan Markram's out of the series now. Dan, who do you think comes in for him? Well, we asked, that, we asked Mark Balter that exact question. and he's, He was uh, pretty straightforward. He said Peter Maline has been with the side, um, has scored a lot of runs opening the batting for, for the Cobras, who play their, their home cricket in Newlands, where the next test will be. According to Balter, it's going to be a straight swap um, at the top of the order. He, we, we've seen a staff in cricket when we try and move a middle-order batsman up the order. Tim Boom has had some success but hasn't really set the house on fire 
opening the betting, and we we essentially ruined the international career of Stian Fasale, who, who now obviously plays in county cricket as a fullback, uh, a fluent middle order batsman who was asked to go and open the batting and, and struggled and, and never really recovered from that knock to his confidence. So I think lessons have been learned, and and uh, you know as, as you know, opening the batting in England and South Africa to it, it's probably the hardest job in cricket. So you don't really want to ask a guy who isn't experienced at that. So Peter Milan will come in. So uh, t- tell us about Peter Milan. English listeners would probably never have heard of him. Yeah, really, really compact opening opening batsman. Likes to play his shots. Maybe perhaps not as uh, free-flowing as as Aidan Markram is, but I guess the way that Aidan's gone, maybe that's not necessarily, necessarily the worst thing. Right-handed batsman. Um, not, 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 not the biggest guy in the world. Plays, plays well off the back foot. In Cape Town, where it seems around, you, you, you've got to have a very compact technique. You've got to, you've got to know how to leave the ball. You have to know which balls to drive. Um, you can't in, in Cape Town. You can't really play with that sort of 45 degree angle bat. When you're playing with a straight bat, it's got to be straight. When you're cutting or, or, or pulling or flashing from the front foot, it's got to be uh, you know, perpendicular, uh, rather parallel to, to the ground. So he, he, he knows his game. He scored several tests, uh, several first-class tons. No, um, he's uh, 30 years old, another guy who's been around the block for a while. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes. Um, I, I like I like South Africa's act handing handing 30-year-olds debuts. You know, it shows that um, there isn't a a rush to to catapult guys onto the onto the big stage. That. They're rewarding people who have been around, who have served their time, who have scored their runs, or taken the wickets. So, yeah, funny enough, South Africa, you know, it seems strange to say this after this one match, but I like where South African cricket is at the moment. Well, thanks a lot, Dan. Um, we'll talk to you after the second test. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Joe, what was your moment of the week? So, my moment of the week was uh, Peter Siddle uh, announcing his retirement from international cricket. Um, he's had an incredible career really incredibly durable career uh which has had kind of different chapters i think he's been uh sort of hated by english fans to start which was nothing new for an australian fastball obviously but i thought there was real dislike for him when he first came around in 2009 why was that i don't know i think part of it was a bit how he looks to be honest and and he's angry celebrations angry celebrations but actually I, i interviewed him last summer um after the first ashes test and it, he a lovely lovely man and that is what everyone in the game says about him Matt Pryor tweeted congratulations on a great career to one of the one of the good guys and it's not often you'd be saying it about an Australian fast bowler when they you might say what an amazing career but you wouldn't say one of the good guys I don't think uh and obviously this is from an English perspective but it does feel his career has been almost like kind of uniquely stitched around Ashes series he's played six of them uh four in England which is the most by an Aussie pace bowler since the war and just a few incredible moments. The one that really sticks out, obviously, is that the start of the 2010-11 Ashes when he took a hat-trick on day one at the Gabba, his birthday, um, roaring, I say roaring crowd. Uh, it's a bit embarrassing, but I was meant to be there. Um, it was my first Ashes tour in Australia, but I got a bit confused with the time difference. So I actually was at Sydney Airport watching the first day of the Ashes when I should have been at the Gabba because I thought I was arriving a day earlier than I than I should have done. Yeah, I've only this is the first time I've properly admitted this actually. <laughs> New Year kind of just getting it all off my yeah. off my chest. So yeah, so that great Ashes moment. I Wait, was, sorry, can we go back to that? So you booked the flight for the wrong day, basically. Yes, okay. yes. Yeah, so I thought I was arriving in Sydney the day before the series started, so I could get a connecting flight to Brisbane. Yeah, actually, Sensible. I arrived and I had worked this out obviously as I yeah. got on the flight. I arrived to be told by um, Australian Customs that Andrew Strauss was already out. So obviously he got out. It was the first ball of the Ashes, first over. And then sat there and watched Siddle do that at the end of, at the end of day one. That's um, one of my favourite videos of uh, Australians doing well. Like the commentaries are quite iconic. Like, Peter Seal's got a head trick on his birthday. <laughs> it's great. Um, well, so I think he, he actually retires as a hugely admired and uh, very popular cricketer. Um, who and he's evolved as a bowler as well because when he mm. first came through he was a, he was a, he wasn't an absolute express fast bowler but he was a bit of a tear away mm. and he's had a few injuries as all fast bowlers do but he's really evolved into a hugely skillful bowler which I don't think people necessarily thought he was at the start of his career um he's done he really suits english conditions which is why he's played four series over here and I think we'll be seeing 
uh, quite a lot more of him in county cricket. Essex love him. They had that cutout of him yeah, at, at Taunton, yeah. didn't they, when they were celebrating the championship. Uh, and also the other thing that strikes me, that the veganism thing, which has always been talked about with Siddle. I mean, can you remember how roundly mocked he was for that when he first came through? I think it was mm. Jeff Thompson might have said, Australian fast bowler who just eats bananas, like absolute piss take. Uh, and actually, in an odd kind of way, the world has caught up with Peter Siddle, that uh, Peter Siddle was leading the way and now we've all realised that he was he was yeah. right. Yeah, and, and I I must admit, I, I prematurely wrote him off. I mean, when he came over this year, I thought, no way is he going to play ahead of Stark, Pattinson, Cummins, Hazelwood. But he played ahead of them and quite often and, and did very well. He did very well, particularly with the bat at Edgebast. Mm. And he hung around with Steve Smith um, from a position where Australia looked almost not quite out of the game, but really up against it. And that partnership really put Australia on top, uh, which in the first Test Finasher series is so huge. Um, so he played a vital part. And he, I mean, he barely went for any runs at all in that test as well. I think his... His nunfer uh, in the first test was described by Justin Langer as the best nunfer ever, which I think is a very Justin Langer thing to say. <laughs> but I could see his point. He did he did bowl exactly how he needed to, given the rest of the attack around him. Hmm. The Centurion test wasn't the only Boxing Day test. There was, of course, the Australian versus New Zealand test at the MCG. Massive crowds there to see Australia go two up in the series. Ari, this is a really good Australia side, isn't it? Yeah, I think at home as well, like so many test teams at the moment. They are really, really good. Um, I'd love to see their current side go to India because I think they'd have a decent chance of taking them on as well. They see the batsmen in the summer who the places you've had question marks over, they seem to have secured their spots in Travis Head and Matthew Wade. and David even, Warner. Yeah, yeah. Um, even Tim Payne seems to his bat. He's had a pretty good summer with the mm. bat. So, And then they're, they've got so many options with the ball, haven't they? But mm. They're in, they're in a great position at the minute. Joe, can you remember someone who's had uh, a rapid as an ascent as Marnus Labuschagne in Test cricket? Like it's it's actually amazing. He's he was picked uh, with a very very modest first class record only just over a year ago. Was dropped out the side, and who knows what would happened had Steve Smith not been hit in the head by Joffre Archer. But he's been genuinely one of the best batsmen in the world now for, for the last eight months yeah it's, it has been astonishing I don't think anyone saw that coming uh, I remember on our World Cup podcast mocking the thought of him playing in the ashes and saying they had to go with Aaron Finch instead I mean how stupid does that sound now um, I need to stop confessing just these stupid things um, but in terms of like rapid ascents you, you do see it in test cricket quite a lot um, you saw it with a few examples like Mike Hussey uh, but he Gary Balance. Well, Gary Balance is an interesting one. So that and Strauss was another one that I thought of. Balance had a very had a, had a similar start, but I think people even then were questioning whether Balance's technique was going to be up to it against real fast bowling. The thing with Labuschagne is he looks so comfortable that obviously his form will go up and down, but it doesn't look like it will go down for a period of time that will cost him his place in the Test side at the moment. He just looks so comfortable. There's a new Wizarding Cricket Monthly out, Joe. There is, yes. Uh, yeah, what's in it? There's loads in it. Um, the cover features are our teams of the year. So we do this annually. We we got a panel of 31, I think it was, writers and broadcasters from across the world, uh, from different nationalities, to keep it all all fair, um, to pick their test 11 of the year. Um, and I would add that this was selected before Pakistan series against Sri Lanka. So Babarazam might not be in there. Please don't tweet me. He'll be, he'll be in it next year, probably. Uh, there's also a women's cross-format team of the year, uh, an ODI team of the year, and a T20 team of the year picked by Freddie Wilde of, of CrickViz. Um, so that's that's the kind of uh, cover story. But then we've also got an exclusive interview with uh, Joe Denley, which I did a couple of weeks before he went out to South Africa. He talks about the drop. He did talk about the yeah. drop, yeah. Um, he kind of gave a huge sigh as I asked him, but he took it in good spirits and said... Um, well, he, he couldn't explain it. I don't think he, I wasn't expecting him to be able to explain it. But he said, hopefully, he can take a couple of crackers of Archer in this series to to try and make up for that. Uh, Phil Walker out with Monty Panasar, the one and only Monty. Uh, that was the one that that uh, that got me particularly interested in this issue. I mean, not was, the interview that I did with Joe Denley. Well, no, of course, of, of course, <laughs> I was into that. But Monty Panasar is somebody we've seen a lot of online no, jo- on the Monty channel in the last year. Everyone's kind of been wondering what's going on with it's Monty. A, it's a brilliant interview uh, I think Phil sat down with him for like an hour and a half um, covered all sorts uh, I think to be honest Phil went into it with a little bit of 
trepidation. I wouldn't mind. I don't think you mind me saying that. Just it's quite hard to get a handle on what Monty is doing these days because he's got his channel, which is kind of quite eccentric, and he wasn't sure what kind of state Monty would be in, to be honest. But it's a really optimistic piece, uh, and Monty does things his own way, not always the right way. Um, but he's actually loving life and doing lots of <laughs> slightly bizarre things. Talking about a tilt at London Mayor um, in the future. Um, I'd vote for Monty. <laughs> would, would you? <laughs> um, so that's that's really definitely worth checking out. Um, and what else did I want to point people towards? There's a Ada Rashid Masterclass. Which, which Ada Rashid Masterclass, so for any aspiring leg spinners yeah. out there. Uh, the other one I wanted to talk about was um, Rob Smythe, who is one of my favourite cricket writers, if not my favourite cricket writer. Looking back at the 2010-11 England series in South Africa, which really set, sorry, 2004, Nine, five, four, five okay. sorry, which really set the tone for the 2005 Ashes, which obviously mm-hmm. followed the next summer. And Vaughan just kind of, the Vaughan principle was what Marcus Truscothic described as playing to win whenever possible. And they pulled off some astonishing wins in South Africa, mm. did the same obviously against Australia the, the following summer and, and the rest is history. We've got a new columnist as well, Andrew we Miller. We do. God, you remember this magazine better than I do. Uh, Andrew Miller. Yeah, so we lost Jonathan Liu, unfortunately, who has become a, a new father, got many other jobs, started at The Guardian recently as well. So uh, after, after what, 25 issues, we're saying goodbye for the time being. Uh, we've got a brilliant replacement, Andrew Miller, who most people will know from his uh, writing for Crick Info. Uh, and his piece seems particularly pertinent now because he, he chose to write about Johnny Bairstow for his first column. Um, sees comparisons between uh, Johnny Bairstow and one of his early early dogs, early family dogs. Um, I'll let you read the magazine <laughs> to, 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 rather than elaborating more. Um, and a brilliant piece from an, another columnist of ours, Adam Collins, on um, the David Warner story, which just keeps going. Uh, he makes the point that at the start of this summer, Warner was nowhere to be seen on any Cricket Australia paraphernalia. He was completely kind of almost whitewashed, still feeling the effects of, of his ball tampering ban. By the end of that series against Pakistan, he's front and centre again um, after scoring that triple century. Uh, and yet still a lot of people don't like him. A lot of people do. And he still doesn't really care. Interesting. Um, we can't go the whole episode without mentioning what I think is actually potentially my moment of the year from the Big Bash. There was a very funny incident uh, in the game between the Melbourne Renegades and the Adelaide Strikers. Uh, Renegades batsman Bo Webster was seemingly given out by the umpire, Greg Davidson. Um, he raises his finger to about shoulder level, um, by which point Rashid Khan, the bowler, had already gone celebrating, running off. And then he goes to scratch his nose as he re- basically reverses the decision. And then he's adamant that, no, I'm not giving it out, I'm not giving it out. Uh, and they, they have players mic'd up in the BBR and you've got Cameron White, I think is the is he, I'm not sure if he's the captain, but he was he was the one who's mic'd up, and he was he was absolutely fine with the decision. Says like, as long as they've got to the right decision, that's fine. It doesn't matter how he got there, uh, that's fine. But I'd I'd yeah I'd urge you to to watch the video if you haven't because it's really it's on our funny. Twitter feed, right? We yeah, put it, yeah, yeah. It is beautifully club cricket, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, Harry, have you ever seen anything like that in in club cricket? Uh, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> I just think, could you imagine being the batsman, sort of being like, oh damn, yeah. mess I've gone, and then yeah. oh no no no, I'm all fine. He's just had a scratch. <laughs> oh, the, the best bit is like there's a replay of of it which shows Rashid Khan in shot with the umpire, and you see Rashid Khan turning away in celebration, just as he goes to the nose scratch. So Rashid Khan would have been like, "What what's going on?" He, he raised his finger. Um, but he got it was the right decision in the end. I'm not right? sure. I, I've, I've not seen. Re- cool. I've okay. not seen uh, the Hawkeye or if he if he got bat on it. I, that, that's what Cameron White thought. Cameron White thought he got bat on it. Okay, but that was that was pretty pretty funny. Thanks for coming in on December 30th, Joe. Absolute pleasure. Nice likewise, to see you. Likewise, Harry. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, this has been the Wizzing Cricket Weekly Podcast. Thanks for listening, folks. Not only today, but over the course of 2019, our first full year as a weekly show. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Uh, and if you're feeling particularly kind, please leave us a five-star review on the podcast app of your choice. Cheers. Podcast Network.